everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by my co-host, James Daynard. James, I think I got a, a little uh, early Christmas present for you. What if I told you we could dig into the insights from 270,000 single family rentals today? Well, I mean, that that's a lot to unpack. So <laughs> as long as you do all the analytics and deliver it to me. You don't have to do it. We have a guest who's going to do it. We actually have Rick Palacios Jr., who's the director of research and the managing principal at John Burns Research and Consulting. If you don't know this company, they are one of the best data providers in the entire industry. We've had their founder, John Burns, on the show a couple of times. And Rick is joining us today because they do a survey. They've been doing this for years where they poll 270,000 individual single-family rentals. I've never heard of a survey, sentiment index, anything that is this big. So I think we're going to get some really incredible insights from Rick today. Anything you're looking forward to or anything about the single-family rental market you really want to know? I'm looking forward to just talking about a little bit about what the hedge fund guys are doing, where the opportunities could go, and in whether we think some more inventory is coming to market. Because you know, as we know, inventory is tight, but people are thirsty for investments right now. So I'm hoping more loosen up so we can get get more deals in 2024. I'm thirsty. <laughs> 2023 has been a thirsty year. It's going to be a very thirsty year. We got to we got to drink up next year. Yeah, let's turn the faucet on, please, uh, and, and get some deal flow going through. Before we get Rick in here, I just want to say, like, what Rick uh, is really in depth information. He's going to talk about all sorts of topics. Really easy to understand, but there's two things he's going to talk about. One is NOI. If you don't know that acronym, it stands for Net Operating Income. You can think of it like profit, um, but Basically, it takes all of your income from a property and then you subtract your operating expenses. It does not include your financing costs or your CapEx. So that's just what that is. It's just if you if you're not familiar, you can think of it sort of like a measurement of profit for for a, a property. And then we also talk about the lock-in effect. We talk about this all the time on the show, but if you're new to the show, what that is is basically this phenomenon over the last couple of years that rising interest rates has not only pulled demand out of the market, it's also pulled supply out of the market because a lot of people who own homes at a really low interest rate don't want to sell their home because they really love their low mortgage rate and they're not getting another good one. And so that is the lock-in effect. It will all make sense when we talk about it with Rick. All right, so we are going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Rick Palacios Jr., Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash pockets, fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rick Palacios, welcome to On The Market. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dave. Well, Rick, we've had John Burns from John Burns Research and Consulting join us, but tell us what you do for the firm. I am technically our director of research. And what that means is I kind of have my hands in, in everything that we do. And I know you've had John on a few times, but quick background on the firm. We've been around for 20 years. I've been covering housing my whole career for about 17, 18 years or so. Most of that with John. And so, I mean, we touch home builders, the rental space, which I know we're going to get into, building products, you name it. So um, if it matters for housing, we generally are doing something around it for our clients. I, I can definitely attest to that. You guys produce such incredible data and all the other analysts and people who I, I really respect are always citing your data as well. So we, we appreciate all the uh, insights that you deliver. And you used, the, you used data ton of great data, but then you, you also use the word insights. I think that's what we try to do. It's like blend both of those things. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. And, and I think, you know, uh, only a few of us really like looking at raw data. I think most people really just want to get to the the so what of it all. And, and you guys do a great job with that. Yes. So today we're going to we're going to dive into a new report that you have produced about single family rentals. So can you just tell us a little bit about this report? What's the scope? What's the methodology? We have been doing a survey of uh, institutional single family rental operators all the way going back to 2019. And it's a very good sample size. It's in, it's in partnership with the National Rental Home Council. Um, but the sample size is about, I believe, 270,000 properties under management. And so, you know, good sample size. And it's a mix of public entities, the REITs that we all know, but then a lot of the private groups as well. And if you're a data nerd, you realize that it's the private groups that really drive this market, even though the press would like you to believe that is not the case. Um, so, yeah, fantastic sample size. And you know, we're, we're asking all the things I think that matter that we think about in the space, rents, occupancy, forward look six months out. And then I think what I love too, is that we, you know, I, I love when I start getting a lot of questions in my inbox from clients and then I can go and selfishly steer a unique question that we can ask either monthly or quarterly to get a read on things. And so that's, that's what I love doing. And so when it's thematic and timely, we'll try to drop in a question. And I think, you know, we might get into some of the things that we asked this most recent quarter, but um, 
It's, uh, to my knowledge, one of the, the longest running surveys in, in the space. So we, we like it. That's great. 270,000 uh, properties. And I just want to uh, clarify, Rick. So a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are probably smaller investors, own a couple of properties. Are those people represented in the survey too? Or are these mostly large scale uh, companies? They're generally larger scale, professionally managed companies. Great. You know, we probably should look at trying to capture more of the smaller mom and pops because like I mentioned earlier, they're they're essentially 97% of the entire market. Did you say 97%? Yeah, that's yeah, so this the stat around who owns single family rentals across the country, it the institutions which are some people say 100 plus, 1000 plus, it's right around 3% ownership and then it's normal people across the country that have rolled up portfolios or become accidental landlords after their first home that are the the other 97%. Yeah. So they're, they are the market. That's crazy. Everyone always thinks that the hedge funds are buying all the rentals, but there's still a lot of, a lot of room in that. Yeah. Rick, do you think there's a big difference between the reporting from the, you know, the, those these, these big hedge funds and REITs that own these single family housing, they have a lot good reporting. They have a lot more staff behind them. Do you think there's a big variance between the mom and pops operator and the big hedge funds or institutionals as far as like what happens with, you know, vacancy rates, rental, you know, some of the hedge funds are a lot more disciplined about raising rents and, and kind of, do you think there's a big variance between those two? You know, I, I think one of the, in a more simplistic way that we've thought about it is your, your average mom and pop landlord, rental operator, manager, or whatever you want to call it. Um, they're probably not going to be pushing rents exponentially. Um, and the reason there is because for them, if it's one property they have, cash flow is critical. And so you miss out on a month or two months, God forbid more, when you're having to turn that property because maybe you push rents too much, then that becomes a really big issue for them. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why too, and again, we've you've seen the survey that we do, but then, gosh, we do a ton of other reports on this space. And one of the things that that I like to look at in talking to people, especially people that are fairly new to the space, is they ask, well, how does this sector kind of perform over time? And, you know, I bring it back to that that rent comment. You can go back and look at, and we have our own index that tracks rents across 99 markets throughout the country on single family rental specifically. And historically, national rent growth tracks pretty closely to what broader inflation is doing. And then it also tracks pretty closely to what household income growth is doing. So it's 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 a kind of historically vanilla, somewhat boring asset class when you look at it from that perspective. And so what has happened this year, Rick? Have, have rents from the audience that you surveyed followed inflation? I would say like if I had to label this year for the single family rental industry, it would be a, a normalizing year. And the thesis that we had coming into 2023 was we don't expect this, this industry, single family rental, to collapse, freeze up by any means. Um, and I'm talking about the fundamentals, not the capital markets. And we can kind of get into that later if you want. Um, it was more of a, hey, things are going to cool off, but they're going to normalize. We're not going to fall off a cliff. And so what I mean by that is everything that we experienced from the kickoff of COVID in spring 2020 up until 2022, 
you kind of have to throw that out and think of it as this once in a lifetime uh, event where migration was on steroids, you had household decoupling. And you know what that basically means is you might've had two, three people living together, COVID hits and they go, well, I'm going to go out to the suburbs. I need to go have my own place because I'm working from home. And that was just like steroids for the entire rental market, both multifamily as well as single family rental. Um, so you had that, you had migration and those things have now kind of come off. And so what we're seeing now, and this is, this is in our survey too, uh, rent growth trends, occupancy trends, everything is really reverting back to what we saw in our survey around 2019. And then beyond the survey work that we do, I, I mentioned we have proprietary data points for 99 markets across the country. We track on this. And, and that's really the, the theme is things are just kind of normalizing back to what this asset class has looked like from a fundamentals perspective um, pre-2020. And, and so that, that is a, I mean, you, you kind of look at what's happened in the multifamily space this year, not great, got way oversupplied. Um, you can make a case that some of that is, is hitting built to rent as well, but the single family rental asset class has performed pretty, um, in a pretty healthy way. And I think that's really been part of the core reason why people like this asset class is you don't get massive volatility, especially in rents. Home prices have been different this time around. Um, and so you, you can kind of plan around that. Like it's not going to go nuts up or down. It's pretty recession proof from the metrics we've looked at. And that's playing out right as of right now. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to know that historically rents, you know, grow around inflation or a little bit above inflation, as Rick had said, and that what we saw over the last few years, perhaps if you got into real estate investing, you know, since the pandemic was anomalously high growth and seeing, uh, James, I'm curious about your opinion, but like, I think seeing three to 5% growth, even though it's lower than it has been over the year, I personally like seeing that I like a return to normalcy. Yeah, I was pretty happy with a 5% growth this year. I, I was anticipating it to be a little bit flatter um, just based on the hockey stick we saw throughout the pandemic. Um, and, you know, historically, like you said, we track a little bit above inflation on Like when we're looking at a long-term performa on a multifamily property or single-family rental, we're, we're anticipating 3 to 4% rent growth every year. And I kind of feel like because the pandemic, it was so crazy, it's like we, we got off the freeway and we took the turn ramp and we're still making we're still going to where we're supposed to be going, but it just feels like it's way slower because it's not the same. But I mean, 5% growth, if we hit 5% growth every year, we're going to be pretty happy with that that return. And, and so I think that's important for people to remember is like Rick said, that was not normal. You have to kind of throw out those years because growth, steady growth is really what you get out of real estate, not these hockey sticks like we've seen. Most people that have been investing in this space for a long time are totally fine with that. It's it's the fly-by-night that kind of got in late mm -hmm. and said, oh, I can underwrite to 10% rent growth for the next five years. Those are the <laughs> those are the, the individuals and entities that um, are, are having issues and then obviously now running into the buzzsaw of what's going on in the capital markets too. That explains and gives us some insight into what has sort of happened on the income side of the equation. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the expense side? So I'm glad you bring that up because that has been one of the more volatile pockets of the, and you just kind of think about the math of your NOI, um, that has thrown a wrench into things. And I think you're hearing that from smaller groups as well as the big institutions. And there's a couple components of it. I think one is we think about asset values and appreciation being fantastic. And it is typically, but when you get 10, 20% upwards, even more home price appreciation, that eventually then rolls into your property taxes in a lot of states. Like you get hit, uh, unless you're in California, which they have Prop 13. But um, I think that that took a lot of groups by surprise. And it was kind of like in the moment, oh, this is fantastic. Our, our, the values are ripping. And then you kind of get the property tax bill. You're like, oh, crap. <laughs> we didn't model this. So I think that's, that's one component of it. And then I think, too, the other component of it uh, is uh, that on the expense side is uh, insurance costs. I mean, that is coming up over and over and over again. We just had our big uh, client conference in New York. And this was this was a theme throughout it for both home builders, rental operators, where uh, on the rental side, and I'll kind of focus on that single family and build to rent too. I mean, they are getting hit with uh, insurance costs on no renewal notices that are going up 10, 20, 30 plus percent. And so what that does is it immediately has an impact for you on the expense side. And then also, if you then have to model that in going forward, you're, you're not going to be able to acquire because the math immediately changes for your acquisition targets and, and kind of your buy box. And so I think that has become a big issue for a lot of groups. And you talk about Florida, you talk about Texas, California, there's a lot of groups that are just no longer writing policies. And that it doesn't sound like that's going away anytime soon. So I that that has been a big issue. Yeah. So the expense side of the equation hasn't looked all that ideal for a lot of groups lately. For us is, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, apartment syndications. We have a lot of different rental properties. Our insurance bill is a real cost on these properties. And not only that, when you're doing value add, your construction plans, uh, those have almost doubled on the cost. So that, that short-term financing, when you're getting it through stabilization and bringing it up to a new code, if you're buying an old building right now, the costs are through the roof. And to touch on California, it is a complete nightmare. Yeah, I just purchased my first property in California. It took me over three weeks to find an insurance policy for a single family house. It, and the costs were absurd. Some of my quotes were coming in at $50,000 annually for a single family house. Where is this house? I mean, is it on a cliff where the water's coming up? It's a nice house. <laughs> it is on a cliff. Okay. It was absurd. And we got it down, but it, it took forever. And, you know, I'm used to insurance has never been an issue. It takes us 24 hours to get underwritten in a policy in play. And in the fact that it took two to three weeks to get the insurance in play and then the cost of it. It's astronomical. Yeah. And in from what our insurance providers and brokers are telling us is this is not getting better. No. This is the, this is going to get worse. And it's making a huge difference in our 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 overall operational costs. 
and, and what it's doing to the bottom line. In addition to the insurance cost, the labor cost has been really getting us. Like the cost to hire your property managers and to run your book of business correctly has increased at least 25% on wages of what we have to pay. To get anybody good that will stick, that's not going to have high turnover. The lower end, your turnover so high, it's just, you might as well just pay the higher wages. It's not even worth it, yeah. Oh, it's brutal. What's the time comparison you're using on that 25% increase? Is that over the last two years, three years? Because that that's a lot. Typically with our property managers in the Pacific Northwest, if we're a salary employee, the average salary was 55 to 60 grand. Yeah. If we hire that, 55 and which I don't think is a bad wage for that position but if we hire at that 55,000 kind of medium price right there the turnover is like every 4 to 6 months they're they're gone and so what we found is we've had to go from 55 to 60 to 65 to even 70 for the really good ones they can keep things turned because you know they reduce your vacancy rates your good employees are worth keeping but the, it's a huge jump when you're talking you know, 55 to 65, that's, you know, that's a big, big increase. And that was over the last 12 to 18 months. We saw that big increase, but it's still staying pretty heavy in the Pacific Northwest. And and that's a big part of why, um, you know, conversations we have and then the data that we actually track on this across the country um, on the acquisition side, things have just slowed down massively because you kind of have all of these inputs rolling through that we've now talked about. The expense side is not looking fantastic. You do have rent growth normalizing, cooling off, and then cost of capital is just blown out. And so immediately that just forces people to go pencils down or at least like, hey, we need to sharpen our pencils a bit here and kind of figure this out. And for the time being, the acquisition side is just kind of shut off for the most part from what we've seen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rick, you just mentioned uh, the cost of capital as, as a major impediment to acquisition. Uh, what about the availability of capital? We hear a lot about just, you know, in the commercial market that it's difficult to get a loan, credit's tight. Same thing going on in single family? I think so, especially if your lens is today versus when SOFR was at zero. Rick, can you just uh, explain what SOFR is? It's a secure overnight financing rate and it kind of replaced LIBOR. And for people in this space, that is the benchmark that they will look at when thinking about financing deals. And so when we were in a zero interest rate policy world, SOFR was right around zero, uh, I believe for two years, March 2020 to around 2022. And then obviously the Fed comes in, does their thing. Um, and today it's hovering, I think around five and change last time I checked. Um, and it hasn't come in like the rest of the yield curve has. So like you look at two-year rates, five-year rates, 10-year rates, those have all come in, but SOFR is still kind of unmoved. It's right around there. So I think that's a big part of why, I mean, you can buy a 10-year treasury at 415 and SOFR right now is at five plus. So it's like, it makes doing deals in this space pretty tough right now. And so I think everybody is 
hoping that, I mean, we'll find out today, we're recording this on, on December 13th and the Fed is about to say what they're going to do, at least kind of guide to what they're going to do next year. And I think everybody in this space is really hoping that, yes, we do have a soft landing and that there are some cuts next year because that should roll through into what SOFR financing will do. Um, and I, you know, I, again, kind of taking a, a, a longer term view of this sector, I think one of the reasons that people, you know, fell in love with this space when rates were at zero was, and that was for a while, um, it was very hard to get yield anywhere. I mean, like anywhere. And so people looked at this asset class and said, oh yeah, I can borrow, I can lever it up. I get rent growth, I get home price appreciation, and that's a pretty decent yield in a world where yield almost doesn't exist. And so now the it's almost like a 180 where today yield is everywhere and it's, by, oh, by the way, it's risk-free. So that's where it gets a little bit tougher to um, you know do deals in this space and, and capital is now kind of looking at other places too. We have noticed over the last 12, you know, I would say 12 to 18 months, these big hedge funds have really slowed down on buying these single family houses. And, you know, and right now with the interest rates, it's hard to make deals cover, but there is a little bit more opportunities out there. Um, you know, right now, I know the mom and pops investor, they're, they're getting pretty high interest rates. Uh, when you're looking at buying a rental property, your rate is getting quoted at the best case, seven and a half to eight percent right now and it can be make it hard to cover but what we have found is because some of these big institutions have pulled out and not only that the seasonal investor has also pulled out of the market you know the ones that were like you're saying are are projecting the 10 percent rent growth that have only been in that hot market they've kind of pulled out so we have seen some opportunities but what do you think is going to happen for that small mom and pops investor do you think that their appetite's going to increase to buy rental properties because it still feels like the the tone is, oh, rates are too high. You can't make a pencil. We've seen opportunities and we've been buying properties, um, but it comes with a lot of hair on them a lot of times. Like you, you do have to go, you, you got to do a lot of value add uh, to, to get it there, to create the acquisition, to get the basis low enough. Do you think that the mom and pops investors are going to continue to be purchasing throughout the 2024? Or do you think it's going to be a little bit flatter like it was in 2023? If what we talked about earlier and we do get a soft landing, rates do start to come in next year, I think that will lend itself favorably to more groups coming in and and hopefully some of the smaller mom and pops. I mean, what we've seen in the data that we track is that the 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 institutions for the last probably year or so, really ever since the Fed started jacking rates and they've kind of hovered at where they are today, they they have pulled out massively. Like they, they're almost gone for the most part, but the smaller groups that you're referring to the smaller mom and pops, um, they're, they're still in there. And, and I think what, what we see in our data market by market is that they're buyers throughout cycles. Um, so, so they, they're, they're kind of always, there, always playing. I think what you said on, um, you know, there's some hair on it and it's value add, which is kind of a euphemism, a euphemism for it's, it's stressful. <laughs> like this is not an easy deal. <laughs> not for James. He finds that very comforting. <laughs> That's probably where you are finding opportunity right now. Um, you know, I, we we look at what the the REITs are reporting and talking about. And one of my favorite stats from this last quarter that American Homes for Rent mentioned, AMH, I think is what they're now officially called. I think the the stat that they said was, 
you know, this, cause they're always having deals that go, they'll roll through their underwriting models. And so I think it was like 22,000 homes that they ran through their underwriting model and they only bought eight. Whoa. So only eight of those 22,000 fit with what they needed in terms to acquire those homes. So that, that, that exactly, that right there is a microcosm for kind of what we're seeing in the data across the country right now for the the bigger groups. Wow, that's not encouraging. I don't want to run. I don't want to run numbers on twenty two thousand deals to get eight. Your model's <laughs> probably not as sophisticated as theirs. Definitely not. Rick, I'd love to get your thoughts on what might change in the single family rental space in twenty twenty four. Just in broad strokes, what do you what are you looking out for next year? I mean, our our broad brush thesis is we don't get a recession, and so that. If that holds, that's good for the sector. Um, so then you kind of think about rent growth. Uh, and this goes back to our comments earlier. Uh, do not pro forma double digit rent growth because I mean, that's again, you know, throw that out. That's probably um, once in a lifetime. Forever. Yeah, forever. The way to think about the space is probably 95, 96% occupancy rates. Um, in most markets, you're getting three to 5% rent growth. And this is us thinking about it from a new lease perspective. Um, and that's a pretty vanilla type backdrop for, for this asset class. And then you kind of think about acquisition volumes. And this is where I think if you do, and I, actually, as I'm talking through this, I'm, I'm glad we're kind of bringing this up because one of the other things I think that has uh, worked well for, for the single family rental sector is that you haven't had a lot of listings come into the market for rent this cycle. And so a big part of that is what happens in SFR, single family rental on the listing side is usually a flow through of what's happening on single family for sale side. Meaning when listings pop up on for sale, the lion's share of acquisitions for rental groups they come through the MLS. And so what we didn't see this cycle, and there's a ton of reasons why, lock-in, I won't get into that. Um, we just did not see a spike in listings activity. And so by definition, you did not see a kind of transition for some of those coming into the rental space. Um, what we do envision, though, for 2024 is that we do think, and you can see this in the data, peak lock-in, was around middle of 2022. Uh, we are starting to see more for sale listings coming into the market at a, at a very unseasonal period. Um, we just ran this analysis of one of our reports this month. Right. And so I think you start to think about that and you fast forward to 2024 and you go, okay, well that probably tells me that we may start to see more activity in terms of single family rental listings coming into the market, acquisition opportunities, because that supply really was just locked up for the last year or so. And so that's also part of our thesis on, okay, so you'll probably get more incremental supply. You probably should think about rent growth normalizing a bit compared to prior years. So that's that's a that's a, a bit of the, the minutia of our way of thinking about it next year too. That's super interesting. And I am curious, do you think the lock-in effect will continue to sort of trickle, you know, like phase out slowly? Or do you think there's sort of like this magic point where if mortgage rates get down to a certain point, we'll start to see a flood of supply? 
Yeah, I hate using the word flood because usually you only get flood if there's massive distress. Yeah, true. That is not in our thesis. I haven't heard anybody calling for that unless they're just like a perma bear. Um, so I do think the lock-in, I think the lock-in effect is just going to slowly, like the keys on the handcuffs are just going to slowly start to unlock incrementally more and more people. And I think too, if if you do have a world where mortgage rates, so let's think about mortgage rates, market mortgage rates touched eight for like a week, right? Early November, now they're back to seven and change. Um, and I think if if people get more comfortable with the idea of, hey, we're not going back to a 3% 30-year fixed mortgage world anytime soon. So I got to give up hope for that. And now I'm a year, two years longer into this kind of higher for longer backdrop. And so, you know what? Life happens and I'm going to retransact. I'm not going to wait for 3%, 4% mortgage rates again. And so I think that slowly but surely that is going to start to happen. Um, and the other thing, this is kind of a wild card in this, uh, where you talk about the, the, the ability for inventory to unlock. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that the new home space, home builders, and we're very close to that space, uh, have just had a phenomenal run this year is a not much resale supply. Uh, so not much to compete with, but then B on the entry level specifically, they've been buying down mortgage rates to five. Some builders are still averaging or advertising below five, which is amazing. And I bring that up because they've had a fantastic run using that. You're starting to see some groups that, um, could do something like this for the resale market. And so what I mean by that is um, brokerages are starting to have conversations on like, hey, is this a tool that we can use for our clients? And because that's really a huge advantage where new homes coming in at five, five and a half mortgage rate, a resale home, you gotta pay 7%, maybe 7% plus. And so if some of that resale inventory can get down to a competing rate that the builders are doing, that's where I think you start to have more inventory come into the market. And there's a, there's a group, I mean, I feel like we almost forgot about the iBuyers, but they're out there still. And there's a group called OfferPad mm -hmm. where you can go on their website, poke around. And I was doing this the other day for Phoenix. And you can see that they're advertising homes that they've acquired and they're now selling at a 5% mortgage rate. Wow. So they're, they are buying down that rate for the the takeout, which is a retail buyer. So that's where I do think that that's a, a potential for the resale market to kind of get their arms around this, this financial tool that builders have been using and go, okay, let's start doing that too. And we'll probably get some sales. That, that's super interesting, Rick. I, I just want to explain to everyone, um, just to make sure everyone understands. Uh, basically, over the last year or two, just based on builders' business model, they are incentivized to move product quickly, um, generally faster than existing homes. And so they're buying down people's interest rates. These are temporary things where the buyer pays a couple thousand dollars to lower your interest rate by one or two or 3% for one or two or three years. And that is one of the reasons we're seeing a big uptick in, as we were discussing, people buying new construction. And it's made it more attractive relative to existing homes than it has been in the past. But it sounds like, Rick, you're saying that 
you know, agents, brokerages are trying to figure out ways or offer or considering similar incentives to maybe, you know, level the playing field a little bit in terms of interest rates so that more sellers are, are motivated to to buy and start to get some, uh, or it's more sellers are motivated to sell, excuse me, and get some more supply in the market. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And the one thing I'll, I would say is they're, sometimes they're temporary buy downs, but the lion's share of them is in terms of what builders have been doing are the full 30 year fixed. Oh, really? Yeah, so that- huh. That's great. That is a huge tool because, you, I mean, you think about that and the consumer, obviously there's a lot of demand out there for for home purchases and if you can have the conversation with a retail buyer and say hey market rates are up here at seven and a half or whatever they were now they're seven but we can get you in at five and oh by the way that's the entire duration of the 30-year loan i mean that that's a great sales tool absolutely poke around on builders web pages and uh almost all of them are leaning into 30-year fixed buy-downs. Some of them are starting to advertise adjustable mortgages again, and we can get into that if you want. But um, I think the consumer the consumer psyche around adjustable mortgages is like, oh no, I remember those. I remember what those did. I don't want that. And so most consumers are leaning in towards the 30-year the fixed buy-down, and that's why builders are leaning into. Rick, while I got you here, can I run a, a theory or a question I have by you? It's not in your report, but I've been reading a lot and we've been talking on the show a lot about the oversupply and a lot of overbuilding in the multifamily space. And you're starting to see weakness in rents there. Um, occupancy rates are declining a little bit. Do you think there's a risk that that spills into the single family rental space? The tenant profile is so different. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think, and we have the data that backs this up, you, the, the, the multifamily space, apartment space, um, historically very volatile, you get supply waves, massive supply waves up, collapses down, bleeds through the rents, rents collapse. Um, and we're, we're essentially seeing that right now. Um, but, but it, it, for the, for, for what we're seeing, you're not really seeing an impact on the single family rental side. And I forget the stat, but we have it. Um, it's like it's like finding a needle on a haystack trying to find a three bed apartment. And that that's really a big part of single family rental. It's, hey, we're, we're offering something that works for that cohort um, in a school district. And so that's where when we look at it historically, and I think even this cycle too, I mean, we're forecasting negative rent growth in the apartment space this year, next year. And we're forecasting pretty nice rent growth in single family rental this year and next year. Um, so the you know the only thing that I I can say is because we do have a single family rental index where we track new leases across ninety nine markets. There's a couple markets where rents have gone negative um, or pretty close to it, and there is a connection. So Vegas and Phoenix are the markets I'm talking about. Um, and if you're familiar with the apartment space, Vegas and Phoenix have seen a lot of supply come into the system too. Um, so those are kind of the two markets right now where just from a broad brush standpoint, you could go, oh, those two, those two parts of the rental ecosystem, both apartments and single family rental in those markets have slowed down considerably. But across the rest of the country, we haven't really seen that, that connection yet. 
Got it. Thank you. That, that's super helpful. Well, Rick, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your research and insight with us. If people want to get the report or learn more about your work, where should they do that? Yeah, you can. I mean, you can go to our website and fill out um, an inquiry. We do a lot of research survey work for our clients, but then I, I actually think some of our best stuff is through our free newsletter. And so you can sign up there on our website and then We've got a lot of people on social media. If you're on LinkedIn, you can follow us there. If you're on Twitter or X, you can follow us there. And then even on threads, starting to see more people starting to poke around on threads. So we'll see. Nice. Well, thanks so much, Rick. We appreciate you joining us. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Rick. So James, does any of this research change your opinion about what's going to happen next year, what you're going to do? You know, we're going to keep just doing what we do, run our performance. And if it hits our buy box numbers, we're going to keep buying. Um, You know, I think it's kind of what we anticipated. Things were going to normalize out. We're seeing um, steady rent growth, but we just got to keep tracking those expenses, though. You know, yeah, it really forecasts those expenses to be increased for the next couple of years. And as long as it pencils that way, we'll we'll keep buying. Yeah, man. It, it actually reaffirms kind of what I'm planning to do next year. I've been investing in multifamily passively for the last few years, but I need to get back in buying single family homes and small multifamilies. It's just, mm-hmm. it's such a stable, it's a, it's a very stable asset class. I think to like match that with some of the more bigger swings I've taken in, uh, in multifamily, it's just a, a good way to build out a more balanced portfolio. So it makes me feel good about what I'm planning for next year. Yeah, it's like the everyone's like, oh, I want to get into multifamily because I want to be in bigger projects. But at the end of the day, a single family Burr property will give you the most amount of impact in the short term than a, a multifamily in a long term. It just you that equity growth and cash flow, it's unmatched in that asset class. So don't forget about the little deals. They make money. I know. Yeah, everyone wants to just like, you know, get 20 units all at once. Um, but you know, unless you got a team, it's a lot, it's very effective to just go slowly one at a time and just do a really good job on every individual deal instead of trying to get one big grand slam. Little deals work. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with them. All right. Well, thank you, James, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. And if you like this episode, please give us a review. We haven't gotten reviews in like weeks. I don't know what's going on. So if you're listening to the show, please go on Apple or Spotify and give us an honest review of the On The Market podcast. Thank you all again. We'll see you next time. On The Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but 
At the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.